Well, again, welcome. Uh, my name is Sam Huggard. Uh, privileged to serve as the pastor of Be Free Dover, and I'm uh, really glad that you're, uh, you're here today, uh, both uh, whether you're here in person or online. Uh, glad you've carved out this time. Uh, we've been walking through a teaching series uh, here in our church uh, that we're titling uh, Living Faithfully in a Secular Culture, and we're looking at the Old Testament book of Daniel, uh, so written uh, well before, centuries before Christ, and uh, it's a fascinating story. Uh, actually, I'm kind of curious here. If any of you were to think of part of the most famous story in the book of Daniel, what do you think it would be? Lion's Den. Yes, Lion's Den. That will be in a couple weeks, all right? So we're working our way there. Uh, but we're, we're looking at uh, this story of this uh, Jewish man uh, who lived during a very difficult time uh, when the people of Israel had been overthrown and a, a portion of the people had actually been removed and taken to the land of Babylon. So Daniel is an exile. He's living uh, no longer in his homeland. He's living in a foreign land, in a very different culture than the one he had come from. And uh, he had actually been promoted in this culture. I mean, he is working uh, in the government, a very high-ranking official. And it's a real question, how does he live faithfully in this culture that is very different from the one that he had grown up in? And we're looking at this because, in many ways, uh, we as followers of Jesus Christ are also exiles. Uh, this phrase on the chalkboard over here is kind of our theme for the year, that our citizenship is in heaven. Followers of Jesus, we're technically not home, uh, not in the ultimate sense. Uh, we are waiting uh, for the return of Christ, for things to be as God promises they will be. And the question is, how do we live faithfully? Uh, this side of our ultimate home. And uh, probably it's a very good year for us to consider this, especially during an election year when there's a lot of pressures put upon us, considering values and options for, for how we live within the kingdoms of this world as we represent the ultimate kingdom of God. So that's our, our, our theme uh, for this teaching series, uh, living faithfully uh, in a secular culture. Um, I want to pray here in a minute, and then we're going to dive into Daniel chapter 4. Now, Daniel 4, it's a long chunk, so we're going to do something a little different today, all right? I'll explain it after prayer. I want you to pray with me. Uh, Lord, thank you so much uh, for your goodness to us. Uh, thank you, Lord, that um, you, you love us, you've come for us in Christ, and you're at work in our lives now. Uh, you're at work through the circumstances of life. Uh, you're at work through your word by your spirit, uh, through other people. In many ways and forms, Lord, uh, you are looking to draw us to yourself and to grow us up in Christ. We are thankful. This is a work you don't give up on. Uh, Lord, you are consistent. You are faithful. Uh, thank you for this. So God, I pray this morning that you'd help us and help our hearts to be good soil uh, for your word. Uh, God, I pray that, that as your word uh, comes uh, into our ears and I pray it would descend down to our hearts. It would take... Uh, a deep root there in our hearts, and Lord, would grow up, and uh, that we would become more and more like Christ. Um, so Lord, please, uh, by your word and by your spirit today, mold us and shape us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Daniel 4 is a long chunk. I think it's like 37 verses. So rather than read it all at once, we're going to break it up into three different chunks. Actually, Bjorn did this a couple weeks ago when he spoke on also a story about a dream that was a lengthy chapter. So we're going to do the same kind of thing today. Uh, and after we work our way through those uh, three chunks of Scripture, we're going to do something pretty basic. Um, if you've ever done what's called an inductive Bible study, you know there's like three ways you look at the text. First, you're 
asking observation questions. Simply, what do we observe? What do we see in the scriptures as we walk through? We'll ask those questions. Then we ask the question of interpretation. What does it mean? What do we learn? What's it telling us about who God is and who we are? And then lastly, application. Like, how do we live based on this? So that's all we're doing today. We're going to do some observation, some interpretation, and some application. All right? Uh, Why don't you stand with me? And I'm going to read the first chunk, verses 1 through 18. After I read this, I will say the word of the Lord, and you can respond back, thanks be to God. All right? King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree. And lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able. For the spirit of the holy gods is in you. The word of the Lord. Have a seat. You'll get your exercise today standing up and down. All right, so be prepared for that. 
Uh, a couple quick observations about this, this chapter before we stand up again, or this chunk. Uh, three things here, three observations. First, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar wrote this chapter. Uh, the pagan king, the one who attacked Israel and carried off the exiles into Babylon, he's the one who writes these words. He begins, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages. This is, as far as we know, the only place in the scriptures where a pagan king writes part of the Bible, which is uh, pretty amazing when you think about it. King Nebuchadnezzar writes uh, a portion of the scriptures. Uh, we see here uh, that he wants all people everywhere to know who God is and what God has done for him. This is, in many ways, his testimony. And it's kind of a cool thing that we get to see King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. Now, I just want you to think how radical this is, all right? That this pagan king comes to this place of wanting to share his story of how God has worked in his life. I, I mean, just imagine today if you have, uh, you know, um, in a foreign land, people that hate one another. Maybe, maybe think like, like Israel and Palestine right now, all the tension that's taking place in those nations. You think of the animosity, the enmity, the discord between the peoples. And then just imagine if someone who had been taken hostage uh, through their witness, the person who had held them captive, came to faith and then wanted to tell their testimony. I mean, it would be astounding if we were to hear that testimony today. Well, that's kind of what's taking place here. This may be one of the most unlikely people on the face of the earth to be telling a testimony about the living God. But here we have it, King Nebuchadnezzar and his testimony. Uh, second observation in this uh, passage, for, secondly, that God was at work through a dream. God was at work through a dream. Um, I don't know about you, but a lot of my dreams um, are just frankly weird. I wake up and I'm like, what ha was happening there? Uh, somehow, God's actually working through this dream. I don't know if God's been speaking to me through my dreams. If so, I haven't figured it out yet. Uh, but God was at work through this dream given to King Nebuchadnezzar. This tells us a couple things. First of all, uh, God is the one who takes initiative. God is reaching out to King Nebuchadnezzar to draw him to himself. A as wicked of a man as he was, God wanted him to know the living God. So God is reaching out to King Nebuchadnezzar. And secondly, you can't put God in a box in terms of how he is going to work in people's lives. He works in this way through a dream so that King Nebuchadnezzar would come to know him. Uh, so we see God working through a dream, drawing King Nebuchadnezzar to himself. Now let's lean in a little bit here to this dream because um, it's, uh, it's pretty cool, kind of weird, but cool. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar dreams that there's a tree that grows. And this tree becomes a very tall, great tree. Uh, so tall that everyone all over the earth can actually see it. Um, the Babylonian Empire was great at this time. And so everyone in the, the Babylonian Empire and beyond could see this tree. Uh, this tree was fruitful, beautiful, strong, and abundant. But then a watcher, an angel, comes down from heaven with a message. And the message is, cut the tree down. Cut down this tall, great, beautiful, abundant tree uh, so that its leaves would be stripped, its fruit scattered, all the beasts that found shelter under it would flee. And this tree, which by this point in the dream is pretty obvious that it's King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, this uh, tree 
um, this tree man, uh, would then lose his mental faculties. He said he would be, have the, the mind of a beast, and then he would become like an animal for a long period of time living in the fields. Understandably, King Nebuchadnezzar was pretty scared by the strangeness of this dream, and not just the strangeness, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to think, if this is talking about me, it's not good. And so he's kind of weirded out by the dream. So, third observation, King Nebuchadnezzar called in Daniel to interpret the dream. Um, Now, uh, if this is sounding familiar, it's because we've had a very similar story uh, just two chapters ago, where King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, tried to get the dream interpreted by all his wise uh, people in his court. They couldn't uh, interpret the dream. And so, lo and behold, he calls in Daniel. But what's intriguing here is that God has been at work through the witness of Daniel. Um, Three times here, King Nebuchadnezzar made a point to say, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is within you. That because of Daniel's work in his court, because of this past interpretation of his dreams, he's recognized that there's something different about Daniel, that he has a connection with God that others do not have. And so he believes Daniel is able to interpret the dream for him. And so it's neat just seeing Nebuchadnezzar's relationship with Daniel growing in trust. He's recognizing um, that God is with Daniel, and so we're seeing Daniel's witness grow um, as he faithfully serves. Uh, in, in the king's government. Okay, so those three observations for the first chunk. Let's stand back up and tackle verses 28 through 37. Sorry, verses 19, 19 to 27. There we go. All right, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven." And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, 
Let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. The word of the Lord. Have a seat. All right, three observations again. Uh, What we see is that King Nebuchadnezzar does not repent at first. Um, Oh, hang on. I jumped off to the the, uh, next next, uh, observation. Let's back up. First observation, Daniel was concerned for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Right as uh, this chunk starts, it says that Daniel was alarmed, and he's dismayed. Alarmed and dismayed. Um, You'd think that when Daniel heard this dream, kind of got the interpretation, he might think, finally, the guy that came and destroyed my people, captured me, and has forced me to work for him in his palace, finally he's getting his. You might think there'd be some like sense of revenge on his part. Finally, God has given this guy what he deserves. But that's not Daniel's response. Uh, Daniel is actually concerned for King Nebuchadnezzar. He cared about the king that has done horrific things to his people and to him. I mean, what we see here in a small way is the heart of God on display. The heart of God that loves enemies. This is not a natural response of the human heart. This is God's heart coming through Daniel. And what we see is a glimpse of Jesus' heart. Daniel was concerned for this wicked king. Second observation. Daniel spoke truth even when it was difficult. I mean, all the other Uh, magicians, enchanters, wise men, Uh, they come in and and they, it says they couldn't understand the dream. Frankly, I'm not so sure if it's couldn't or wouldn't, because the dream's not that complex. Uh, But you know, no one wants to say to the king, you're going to get chopped down. I mean, King Nebuchadnezzar has a history of erratic behavior in killing people who don't do what he wants them to do. Nobody wants to give bad news to this king. So on one hand, I think Daniel probably also faced this difficulty. If I say this hard truth to Nebuchadnezzar, how is he going to respond? There's a very real sense that he could lose his life giving this bad news. But, but also, I think there's a sense of he had grown to care for this king, even though he was wicked, and it's hard to give people that you care for bad news. We don't like to say hard things to people that we care for. Uh, That's the case for me. We tend to sugarcoat things or just want to tell people what they want to hear. And this was not what King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to hear. Yet Daniel is faithful to speak what is true. Third observation. Daniel doesn't only speak what is true. He then calls King Nebuchadnezzar to repent. He actually gives to him the pathway towards restoration. He even finishes saying, oh, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar, please repent so that, the, that your, your years of prosperity might be lengthened. He gives him a vision for blessing. He wants good for King Nebuchadnezzar, and he knows that good only comes through repentance. And so Daniel calls King Nebuchadnezzar to repent. Uh, it's pretty amazing when you consider Daniel's response here. You know, there, most, most of the characters in Scripture uh, usually, are, are we, we, we get a lot of very flawed people that we look at all throughout the Bible. 
There are a few people in the scriptures that we mainly get like a really positive view of. Daniel is one of those few people who we mostly see pretty amazing responses in the face of great difficulty. Daniel uh, is living out the values of God in his kingdom. All right, last time. Stand with me, and we will read the final chunk, verse 28 to 37. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against King Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures, for all generation, or endures from generation to generations. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The word of the Lord. Have a seat. All right, three, interp- uh, three observations, then we'll dive into the interpretation portion. Uh, first, King Nebuchadnezzar does not repent at first. Uh, it says that a year passed from the time that Daniel interpreted his dream, gave him the warning, but nothing changed. Um, I mean, it was very clear, Daniel's warning. This dream is going to come true in your life if you do not repent. And time passes, the sense of dread wears off, conviction ebbs, and Nebuchadnezzar goes right on living the way he's been living. And so it says that he's actually uh, walking around on his roof one day, a year later after the interpretation, He's feeling great, he's feeling powerful, he's feeling prosperous. I mean, he is literally looking at one of the seven wonders of the world. He's looking at the Babylonian hanging gardens. And he says, look at this amazing city that I have built. And he is really proud at all of the, the work he has caused to happen. And it says, in that moment, in that moment is when God speaks. But what we need to see first here is that he did not repent at first. And you know what? 
I know what this is like. Repentance rarely happens when life is going great. You know, when things are smooth sailing, I'm not usually thinking about what do I need to change in life. Uh, in my life, it's usually when uh, I hit bumps in the road, when something doesn't go as I planned, when there's hardship, when I start asking why kind of questions. But that hadn't happened to Nebuchadnezzar. God kind of gave him a year, and he did not repent. So, second observation, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, God spoke to him and then caused to happen what the dream had foretold. God took the kingdom from him. God took his mental faculties from him. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar became insane. And instead of living in one of the greatest, most lavish homes ever built, he became homeless, wandering the fields. I mean, this is a true, like, riches to rags story. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar to get his attention. Third observation. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar repented and was restored. Uh, it says that he lifted his eyes to heaven. It's a beautiful picture. He's been looking inward. He's been looking at himself. He's been looking at his situation, his circumstances. But then he lifts his eyes to heaven and repents. He recognizes that he has been exalting himself and putting himself in God's place. See, that, that's the essence of sin. And we all do this in one way, shape, or form. We put ourselves in the place that only God should have. God is the creator of all. He is the one who determines what is right and what is good in life. And yet we all kind of want that place to determine for ourselves what is right and good in our lives. We all do this. And Nebuchadnezzar, at this point of being humbled, came to realize what folly it was to put himself in the place that only belongs to God. And Nebuchadnezzar essentially takes a step down from the throne of his life that he had put himself on and says, you, God, are the king of heaven. You are the one who establishes what is right and what is good. And he blesses him. And then God restores him. I, I mean, I don't, in some ways, I, don't, I almost don't get it. And this guy is so wicked. And yet, because of his repentance, God then restores him. God is infinitely merciful and gracious. He is infinitely merciful and gracious. He longs to restore those who come to him for mercy. And this is such good news. This is such good news for us that God longs to restore lives. Those who have been exalting themselves God does want to humble, but he does not want to leave them there in that place. He wants to restore lives of those that come to him. All right, we've walked through our passages, our observations. Let's dig into interpretation and then application. All right, interpretation, what does it mean? What do we learn? And once again, just because it's a good number, we're going to consider three things, all right? Uh, three things that we learn from this story. First, that God is sovereign. This is a real church word. We say this a lot, God is sovereign. Uh, what do we mean by this? When we're saying sovereign, what we mean is that ultimately, ultimately, the unseen God and his unseen kingdom are in control. Ultimately, though we can't see it with our natural eyes, the unseen God and his unseen kingdom are in control. And I don't mean that God causes every little action every little behavior, as if God is the puppeteer and human beings are just, you know, uh, tied to him and he's causing, he's causing everything to happen. What I mean is that God's purposes can't be thwarted. 
Human actions cannot thwart the ultimate purpose of God. And we see that in this story, that God's purposes can't be thwarted. Now, from our natural point of view, it sure looks like human power, human wisdom, and human beauty are what really matters. I mean, if I was standing in ancient Babylon at that time, staring at one of the seven wonders of the world, I would be pretty awed at like, what humanity had been able to build. I would have been awed at Nebuchadnezzar, his power, his ability. It sure looked like the man with the greatest military might at that time on the planet, all of the wealth, all the beauty that surrounded him, it looked like he was the one that was the most powerful person there is. And in a moment, that changes. God rarely steps through kind of the veil between heaven and earth in that way. Oh, but it is true. The unseen God and his unseen kingdom are real and infinitely greater than any person or any kingdom on the face of the earth now. God is sovereign. Now, he plays the long game with us, but he is sovereign. I was thinking about that this week, this truth. We, we say it a lot in church. But my, thought, my question is, what if I really believed it? What if I really believed that God is sovereign? Not, not just like I, I said it at church, I sang a few songs about it, but, but what if in my day in and day out life, I was to truly believe that God is sovereign, that the unseen God and his unseen kingdom are real and are greater than any person or kingdom on the face of the earth? Would it affect how I would go about an election year? Would it cause me to react differently to even the outcome of an election? Oh, I think it would. I think I would trust that God's purposes cannot be thwarted by human action. Or if I was, uh, let's just say, raising children with all the joy that comes with that and the difficulty and really believed that God was sovereign, would it affect how I went about that? I think it would. I think it would give me a confidence that God's purposes can't be thwarted and I can serve him and entrust outcomes to him. Or with finances, if I really believe God was sovereign, would it affect how I handle my finances? I think it would. I think I wouldn't see my finances as primarily being mine at my disposal to build my kingdom. But I would trust that God is the ultimate provider. He will care for me and I can serve him. See, there's a real flip in life when we believe that truth and apply that truth, that, that God is sovereign. Secondly, in this passage, we learn that God desires that all would repent. God desires that all would repent. Um, this is true, and I'll be honest with you. Uh, I like it for me, not necessarily for others. I like that God wants me to repent and wants to restore my life, that, that nothing I can do puts me beyond his redemptive reach, that he is faithful to those who are faithless. I'm so thankful for that for me. But then when I think about others that maybe have wronged me, or maybe others I don't know, but I you know, kind of disdain because of their positions or whatnot, it's a little harder to apply that truth to others. But see, God desires that all would repent, even Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe some of you have heard um, in the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It's not on the screen here. Famous verse where the apostle Peter 
uh, wrote that the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Nobody is beyond restoration. You are not. Your enemies are not. God desires that all would repent. I think that truth, when we really believe it and then seek to apply it, has transformative power in our life. It changes how we interact with difficult people in our families, in our workplaces, um, in our schools. That reality changes how we interact with people. God is sovereign. God desires that all would repent. And third, God works through his exiled people. God works through his exiled people. He doesn't have to. And this story shows that. He gave a dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. He sends Nebuchadnezzar, he takes his mind away and sends him out, out of the palace to the fields. I mean, God can do what he wants to do. But God chooses to work through his exiled people. Um, in part, because of the witness of Daniel in this story, Nebuchadnezzar repented. And I say it's in part because of the witness of Daniel, because when Nebuchadnezzar hit his humbled state, he knew who to turn to and what to do. He wouldn't have known that apart from Daniel's witness. And I wonder what that was like for Daniel, who had lived in the king's court for years, who had been faithful to bear testimony, who had told the king to repent, and the king did nothing, to finally have King Nebuchadnezzar repent after all of this time must have been amazing for Daniel to see. But imagine if Daniel hadn't been faithful to do this. Imagine if he had been so frustrated and embittered and filled with self-pity in exile that he hadn't reached out to the king in this way. What if he'd been more consumed about his own experience than the plight of this person who was wicked? You see, Daniel believed this, that God could work through his exiled people, that God had brought him there for a purpose larger than himself, and God was at work. I think that truth can really change us as well, that we can go through our own exile not just consumed by our own experiences, by embitteredness, by frustration, by self-pity, but by the opportunity to be used by God in the lives of others. These three truths are powerful. God is sovereign. God desires that all would repent, and God works through his exiled people. The question for us is, do we believe them? Or maybe I should say, how much do we believe those truths? I've been asking myself that question this week, too. All right, we're in the home stretch here. Application. And I want to look at the application through two lenses, uh, a Nebuchadnezzar lens and a Daniel lens. All right, so two main characters here, two applications. First, Nebuchadnezzar. And I have an application question for you. The question is, how has, how is, or how does God need to humble you? How has he in the past, or how is he currently or how might he in the future need to humble you? Now, I'm sure when you woke up this morning, you weren't hoping that would be the question you heard at church. I don't want to hear it. Um, no one wants to be humbled. Um, but here's the truth. The best way to live is a humble life. A humble life is one with hands open, ready to receive. You know, a proud life is hands closed. It's all on us. 
And so God, out of his goodness, wants to humble us. Now, we have the opportunity in life to humble ourselves or be humbled by God. Those are the two options. We can humble ourselves or be humbled. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled in this story. And mercifully, he was humbled in that way. See, sometimes that doesn't happen. And what we get from reading the whole scriptures is we know there's an ultimate day. Philippians 2 tells us when every knee will bow, every tongue confess. So one day, every knee will bow humbly. The question is, is it willingly or not? See, now we have the opportunity to humble ourselves voluntarily, to receive from God all His goodness. And this is the best way to live, is, is to, to humble ourselves before a God who is good. And so I want to give us um, a spiritual practice to lean into this, all right? Um, so we're not just hearing this truth, but trying to live into it. Uh, the spiritual practice is something I've been uh, trying to build into my life, and it's simply called uh, evening, evening Examine. Evening Examine. And it's a way for us to be kind of self-aware, self-reflective about the state of our heart. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was not very self-aware, right? Uh, he's blind uh, to his pride and how damaging it was. Now, until he was humbled, he was not able to repent. So we do need to be aware of the state of our heart. And this is one of the ways we can do that, is at the end of the day, as you're maybe heading to bed, or maybe after dinner, sometime in the evening, you just take a few minutes to pause and reflect on a couple questions. Two, one's a question of gratitude. You could just say, what am I, what am I most thankful for in this day? What am I most thankful for in the day that just transpired? You see, thankfulness is the pathway to humility. Instead of saying, what did I accomplish today? You're saying, what did God do for me today? It's a change in posture. I, I, it's a humble posture. God, you gave me the good things that I received today. Thank you. Or instead of being focused upon the hardships of the day, and we all have them, right? We all have them. But instead of living there in the frustration and the bitterness, we're saying, God, how can I be thankful, even for some of the things that were difficult? How do I see your good hand there? Um, when we start with thankfulness, we begin to turn our hearts in a humble direction. And that kind of prepares us for the next question, which is harder. And this is the confession question. And the confession question is, how was I tempted to exalt myself today? How was I tempted to exalt myself today? To make life about me and my purposes. And friends, unfortunately, given kind of our natural wiring as humans, you probably have something to realize every day. <laughs> In one way, shape, or form, we try to make life about us and our purposes. I was aware of this just a couple weeks ago. I, I, I'm participating in a, in a training cohort, and I, uh, I flew out uh, to California to be with a group of people for a week, and so um, I was there meeting people that I did not know before, and I was keenly aware um, that we never really graduate past middle school emotionally, you know, because I'm in a crowd of people I don't know, and immediately I'm wondering, do I like you? Do I want to hang out with you? Do you like me? And there's all those thoughts going on in my head. And as I kind of asked this question, I realized, really, this is a form of self-exaltation. Like, in the group, I was very aware that I had some good information to share with the others. And you know what? They actually didn't really um, appreciate what I had to share. 
And I thought, my word, how can these people not see how knowledgeable and awesome I am? <laughs> what is wrong with them? And I was thinking to myself, how can I put that out there in a, in a, in a better way tomorrow? How can I kind of get my point across? And it really became obvious to me in this practice of self-examine that that's about my self-promotion. So the next day, I had the opportunity to practice the discipline of silence and not having the last word. And I could operate in that group just for others' benefit, listening, taking in, blessing. This practice really is helpful as we begin to understand better the state of our hearts, what we should be thankful for, and how we attempt to exalt ourselves. So that's the first application, the looking in ways that we need to be humbled. Second application, the lens of Daniel. And here's the question for you. How can God work through you in exile? How is God looking to work through you in your, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school? You see, all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ truly are exiles. We're citizens of heaven, but we're not there yet. We're living out the values of this unseen kingdom. And so we find ourselves living an exile kind of existence. And that naturally produces tension and discomfort and frustration. It's not always pleasant to live as an exile. And even beyond that, beyond just the general sense of being an exile, um, there's, a real, there's a reality that in our culture today, followers of Jesus are increasingly have to embrace an exile mentality. You see, culture always shifts in terms of its posture towards God and towards the Christian faith. There are seasons when there's great acceptance and favor, and there are seasons when there's less acceptance and favor. And God actually says, whether you live in one or the other, you're equally blessed in my kingdom. Our goal isn't to shift everything about people's opinions of God and us. Our mission is to live faithfully. And right now in our culture, it is a little bit more challenging to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's not a widely accepted virtue in our culture today. But that's okay. It's been that way around the world for centuries. And so we follow the patterns given by people like Daniel about how to live faithfully in cultures that don't embrace the values of God's kingdom. Uh, another way that we have to live as exiles is simply in our personal lives. There are times we feel more like outsiders than other times. Times when we go through difficulty, or we're facing relational rejection. Times when life just does not seem to be pleasant or comfortable. And God says that even in those seasons of trial and difficulty, God wants to work through us. Maybe especially in those seasons. See, there's something about these seasons when the reality of God can be seen more clearly. When we see somebody like Daniel in a really tough circumstance, living faithfully, and we say... What's driving him? What causes a person to live like that? It's during difficulty. It's when embracing the realities of exile that God can be most seen. See, God has big and beautiful plans for us, even in exile. He intends, for, he intends to work through us so others can see his goodness. And this is the way of Jesus, the one who left his home and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So we get to practice, I will call this the uh, Nebuchadnezzar prayer, the prayer of Daniel for Nebuchadnezzar. Right now in your life, who's the Nebuchadnezzar person? Who's a difficult person? 
that you need to pray for, that you need to pray that God would reveal himself to, and that God would use you to help that person come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, is there a person in your life, a family member, coworker, friend, neighbor, that God wants to work through you to bless, to reach, to point to himself? You can practice what I would just call Nebuchadnezzar prayer. Start praying for that person. Don't just pray that the person would finally come to their senses and be a better person. Pray they would know Jesus. Pray they would know Jesus. Friends, uh, three things. God is sovereign. God desires that all would repent. And God wants to work through his exiled people. Do you believe those truths? Why don't you stand and let's uh, close in prayer together. Lord, thank you uh, that you are a God uh, who rules over all. Uh, We echo what King Nebuchadnezzar said, that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion is over all. And we are so thankful you made a way for us to be brought into your kingdom uh, through Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you uh, that no matter what happens in our lives personally uh, or corporately, uh, Lord, you are on your throne. Uh, We know that you are going to return And we know that in that day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, uh, Lord Jesus, that you are king. And so, God, we gladly bend our knee now. Uh, We are glad to humble ourselves before you, before a God who is so good that you would die for us. And, God, I pray that you would shape our hearts to be more like yours. Help us to trust. Help us to live humbly. And help us to live so that others would know the king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.